Today we, we start a brand new series, Can I Have a Woo? There you go. Well trained. Um, if you've got a Bible, let's turn to the amazing book of Exodus. Exodus, Exodus. It's a, it's a mighty book. All the books of the Bible are amazing, I hasten to add. But Exodus, um, it's right near the beginning of the Bible, if you're new to the kind of Christianity thing. It's, um, it's an extraordinary story. It is genuinely something that you kind of, uh, you know, it would fit well in Hollywood. It's just amazing. 40 juicy chapters about God's passion. Are you ready for this? For his people's hearts. You see, you read a lot about Exodus and um, some people say it's all about Moses. And Moses is great and there's lots you can learn about Moses. He's a, you know, fascinating guy. Um, some would say it's all about Israel. You know, there's lots about the people of Israel that's fascinating, it's helpful. But I would say the real character, when you read the book of Exodus, is God himself. It's actually not ultimately about humans at all. It's about this incredible, overarching person of God from chapter 1 to chapter 40. And if you know anything about Exodus, you probably know that you know, the big main thing at the beginning is about the whole thing of them being taken out of slavery. So often, when you think about Exodus, all we can think about is the out of slavery bit. And that's you know, really great. It's a kind of picture of the gospel, that when you become a Christian, you were in slavery, and spiritually, God's been taking us out. Woohoo! it's brilliant. But what I want to do with this series, and I really felt constrained by it, I want us to be anchored in the end as we start at the beginning. Did everyone get that? Anchored in the end, say anchored in the end, as we start at the beginning. Because if you know how the story ends, you don't get actually bogged down in the detail in an unhelpful way. You learn from the detail, but actually you're catching this overarching, amazing, big theme. So what is the book all about? It's about a God who fights for his people's heart. Do you know the Christian God is a fighter? All the men are like, yeah! But also it says, one bit, he carries Israel on eagle's wings. That's a beautiful picture there as well. It's a picture, a story about God fighting. You see, at the beginning of Exodus, are the people of Israel God's people? Yes, they are. So at that level, they start God's people, and at the end, they're still God's people. So what changes? At the beginning, they're big, all right? Millions of them. So if we think about application, church stuff, they're doing well. They're a big church. They're big people. Brilliant. They've got high profile. They certainly have. They are unified and close. And they are certainly servant-hearted. They're slaves, by the way, in case you didn't realize. Just like Love Canterbury on steroids, okay? They are serving Big time, the nation of Egypt. All right? So why is, what is Exodus therefore all about? Don't miss this. Tune in if you're not listening. God says all those things are good. Those attributes. I want to add in the biggest rock of all though. The biggest ingredient in the meal has to be there. You can be big. You can have high profile. You can be organized. You can have... Brilliant bands, you can have great sound, you can have flashy PowerPoint, you can have great websites, you can have unity. But if you do not have worship at the center of who you are, if as a people we lose our first 
love, then ultimately everything else is so secondary. That phrase, first love, you find it in the book of Revelation. It's a haunting book. It's amazing. Just, oh, I read it and I think, Lord, wow. And one of the chapters at the beginning, you see God, Jesus, he speaks to a church in Ephesus and he says, there's lots of good things about you, your endurance, your toil, but you've lost your first love. When I read that, I actually wept, if I'm honest. I thought, Lord, check me. Check us. Why are you here at this church? There's lots of great churches. I reckon one of the reasons is because deep down, deep down you really want, when you go to glory, whenever that's going to be, you want to go. You want to go with your heart aflame for Christ. Amen? You don't want to be in a comfy, cozy church because if that's your desire, you better leave because that's not the deal. I want to lovingly kick you up the bum and myself as well as fatherly encourage you. Amen? That's what the Bible does. It encourages and then kicks. Oh, ah, oh, but you're so good. That's what Exodus does. It kicks and it loves. Taking us in a place of devotion. So in the end of the book, chapter 40, you see this amazing moment where everything finally is there. Fire from heaven comes. And it's a picture And what I want us to feel in our souls, not in our little heads, in our souls. When you look at the book of Exodus, if you're a cold-hearted Christian, and you look at the passion of the God who will not give up on his people, despite moaning and grumbling and Moses finding every excuse not to be compliant, all, everything happens that could possibly wage war against them getting to that place of worship, is it there Is it their goodness that gets them there? Is it their impressive devotion? No, they're a joke. They're like me, fickle. The star, the hero of this book is God. And his strong arm pulling them, kicking and screaming to a place of devotion and love. And I find that so encouraging because if you're anything like me, I want to love God. Amen, anyone here? Does anyone want to be passionate for Jesus? Yes, I want that. But anyone here sometimes, just occasionally, look upon yourself and think, yeah, not very impressive. Anyone here? All of us. And this is so wonderful because this is a journey. Say a journey. It's not a one-off event. It's not a power encounter that sorts everything out. It's the reality of the rough and tumble of your life that it's going to mean to the day you die, you will be a work in progress. But there's beautiful hope within that place. And it's going to give us a vision for humdrum at one level, normal life. But in that place, God always working on your soul. When you're covered in baby vomit, sleep deprived, am I even a Christian? Do I even believe in God? It's that kind of feel to it. Amen? So let's read them from the beginning. And what we're going to find is this. Every chapter, the big idea is taking us to worship. I'm sure you've got that by now. But every single chapter gives us a very helpful obstacle to, ch- to worship. Next week, we can look at the whole thing of sin holding us back from worship. Later on, we can look at discomfort holding us back from worship. Later on, we can look at the whole thing of like counterfeit, fake worship. Things that can hold us back from this increasing journey into worship. But today, we start with that which I know all of us will accord with in our hearts. When life 
I've just said is hectic and domestic. And God feels like he's gone. That's the scenario you're about to read. So we go, oh, I can identify with this. Here we go. Verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zubalan, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So the scene is this. Jacob, he's the dad. He's got these sons. We've just read their names. Joseph, one of his sons, God's used in another land called Egypt. Amazingly, he's been used by God effectively to become almost like the prime minister and to save Egypt and much of the world from disaster as famine came. And now, because he's done so well, the actual Pharaoh over him has said, you know what, get your whole family here. You've done well, my boy. Come on. So now they're going over to Egypt, to this amazing place that's flowing with uh, so many good things. And then Joseph died. So now we're zooming ahead. And all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong. So that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. He said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pitom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So the scene here, if you get rid of the overt kind of slavery kind of dimension, actually it's not that dissimilar from the pressure cooker life that you and I live in right here in East Kent. The scene, first of all then, the first challenge that we come across that could wage war against God's people, worshipping him with passion, is just life. There you go. It's just life. The fact, it's not, it's not sin, it's not that they're being sinful, it's just that life is so busy, so crazy, so pressured. That we just somehow, yeah, we, we know the God, but we just, you can get, just forget him. Just get, get forgotten. Now what's fascinating is, here's Exodus 1, right? Genesis 50, the previous chapter, if you were to read that, you couldn't get more of a contrast. Because Joseph's done well, his family's been invited, it's like this bright, shiny chapter. It's like, woohoo, high-fiving with Pharaoh, come on, come over, you've done so well. It's like, yay! And now... We read an incredibly contrasting chapter. Things were bright and shiny for the people of God here. And now we read an incredibly dark period of their life. Now this is huge that you don't miss this. Because the reality is, this side of Jesus Christ returning, you will always have a mix. There will be times of your life which are brilliant, shiny, great, yay! 
And there will be dark times like we've just read. And they may not even be dark in terms of dramatic things, but actually just hectic, just busy, just crammed, just everyone wants a piece of me, you know? Just pressured like work. And and what is so fascinating is that in a heartbeat, your life can go from shiny and rosy to really dark. That's what this is saying. One moment your work is just fantastic and then suddenly it's just a nightmare. One moment your spouse is brilliant and then something just shifts. One moment your health is great and then you get a call. One moment your finances are flying high and then suddenly it's all falling apart. One moment the council really love us. The next moment things change. The press, one moment, you see the trend. The reality is, and don't miss this, God has fulfilled his promises in them. They're starting to come to fruition. You see, in Genesis, God's been saying, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to multiply you, I'm going to make you big. And you think, fantastic, bring it on. That's what's happened. But as the blessing has come, oh, you don't see actually the surrounding people loving it anymore. Suddenly things become a bit different. Oh, you only believe genuinely that there's only one way to know God. Oh, I'm not really sure about that. Oh, I thought, I, I thought I'd gone well with you, but I'm not really sure about that anymore. Oh, you think that the Christian God believes this? Oh, hmm, that's not what I would call loving. And As the people grow, as they get more high profile, actually what you see is the situation changes. Life is really, really intense. Life is busy. And I, I just look across this room and I know for the vast majority of you, you would go, I kind of get that. I, I might not have a literal taskmaster. Maybe you do. Your boss or your parents or someone else who fits that category and you feel almost oppressed. But the point is, is the scenario here is life for the people of God. God is taking them from a bright place to a dark place. But then what you see is even more fascinatingly, you could say that's a general broad brushstroke, but then God picks out in the next few verses like a delicate, beautiful, little fine paintbrush. And now he goes into a specific example of not just general pressure, but read on with me, the super pressured situation of two ladies amidst this general life that's hectic and crazy already. Verse 15. And then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, right, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. One of the dangers with the Bible is we can kind of get familiar with it, can't we? Just imagine what it would be like to be one of those two midwives. You know, life at City Church Israel in Egypt is pressure cooker central anyway. And in that intense experience, you now have two women for whom they are experiencing the day from hell. Has anyone here ever seen one born every minute? Yeah, yeah. It's the the story, the, the program about babies being born. I have watched it many times because I love my wife and no other reason. It is the longest hour of my life when I watch it. But it is intense. 
And this is like in Lee's General Infirmary where it's super well organized and they've got all these monitors and it's like, imagine what it would be like three and a half thousand years ago for these two women. I love this, birth stool. Do you know what that was? Two rocks. They had two rocks. That was their uh, equipment. There is one theory that they may have been the only midwives, the only Hebrew midwives. Why else were they named? Maybe there were two leaders within the midwife movement. There probably weren't many of them. Let's just say their life was fairly busy, okay? And in that context, the most powerful man in the world directly says to them, hi there, you all right? Yeah, yeah. Um, New orders, when the baby's born, if it's a boy, I want you to start a genocide. Every fiber of their maternal midwife spirit would be to preserve life, to care for life. I think when we think our, our days are hard, and our boss is a bit tricky. We look at this. When we sometimes think, Tom, you don't understand, I would worship God. I really would. But my life's fairly intense right now. This deliberately, this context, this story is deliberately graphic and brutal to allow us to understand no matter what Lord takes us into in our lives, no matter what emotional roller coaster you're facing right now, this situation is almost certainly more difficult and more uninspiring to worship God than anything you could possibly imagine. That's the whole point. There's things about worship, and we read these two women here amidst a crazy situation generally. And what we have to understand is this, is that at this moment, this scripture tells us there are only two potential responses any human can make. When life is hectic and domestic and pressured, there are only two responses that you can ever make in terms of worship. The first response is bitterness. Say bitterness. Bitterness. There it is. We see it in verse 14. Because of the situation of their oppressive life, it says, and it made their lives bitter. Made their lives bitter. We live in a world that adores the victim mentality, doesn't it? You only have to watch The Apprentice. There it is. It's never your fault. I'm always the victim. Oh, yes, well, this thing went wrong because of him or her. It's everywhere. It's never our responsibility. We always blame our upbringing or our education or our health or our age or our financial background or our name. We'll blame anything. And I can guarantee that because it's what happened with Adam at the beginning. Do you remember the story, Adam, Genesis, at the beginning? When he takes the apple, he chooses to sin God himself confronts us. What's his response? Oh, it was the woman. It was the woman uh, that you gave me. Double whammy. And ever since that moment, the whole of humanity has been poisoned with a, I'm a victim. It was the circumstance. It wasn't my fault. And what happens is when life is pressured, as it will always be, that's the point here, till Christ returns and make all things new, this isn't some blip. Life is going to be pressured. We have a choice of whether we actually operate out of our natural, fleshly man, as it were, our inherited nature, which is to go, oh, I'm such a victim. Yes, there's all these billions of reasons I could worship God, but actually there's this one thing right now, which means I am absolutely justified. 
in giving in subtly to a heart of, we might not call it bitterness, but it's on that road. Yeah? Tell me it's not just me. I don't think it would be. That is a very real enemy we have to understand. It's something we were born with. It's something that is just in us. And so we have to understand it's there and the propensity to interpret ourselves always as the victim. And therefore, yes, I'm here in body, but to be honest with you, I'm not going to really worship this God because secretly I'm really cheesed off with him. Because my life, thank you very much, is very pressured. That's one road. Or, or we see a breathtaking alternative. We can either go down the road of becoming bitter through this world or bold through our worship. You see here this amazing response of the midwives. And if you didn't know the story, which many of us do, I guarantee you we would not assume what happens in verse 17. I I want you to feel the emotion of it. The nearest I thought was like, you know, President Assad in Syria? From what I can tell, and I might be completely wrong, he seems a pretty scary guy who doesn't really care about seeing hundreds of thousands of people die. And I might be wrong, but I think that's probably what the reality is. Imagine him saying to you, I want you to start doing this. What would your response be? Verse 17 is breathtaking. Let it just infect you. But. (laughs) What? But? How can there be a but? Yes, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. This is breathtaking. Not a song is sung or an instrument played, but I would humbly suggest this is one of the most pure moments of stunning, inspiring, breathtaking, otherworldly worship that is in the entire Bible. It isn't on a Sunday morning with lights and a band. It is where no one else sees, where almost certainly will be met with instant death. And these two complete heroes, these two women, these midwives, in an instant decide, bitterness? Or do we just go for it? (laughs) Do we just go for it? And what I love about this, and this is so key as we start our journey looking at worship, There's no musical element here, okay? Because when you think about a worship series, sometimes we think, fantastic. We're going to sort those musos out, get my favorite songs pumped to the top of the list. We could, you know, get some sort of dry ice and some sort of, you know, trapeze artists to kind of inspire worship and sort out this lighting a bit, you know, maybe move the chairs around a bit and, you know, think about these, these things that are very important. Can I humbly say... If you're sitting here waiting for the perfect worship moment where all your songs are sung and the PA's just bang on and you just feel all bubbly, you're going to be waiting forever. That is not where we focus. Amen? That is the expression of the far deeper thing Monday to Saturday. This is the heart. This is the heart. I love it that this isn't a musical thing because we can tend to just think, and we're going to sing songs in a moment. It's a beautiful gift God's given us. 
But the heart of the issue is the issue of the, say it, it's about their heart in a moment that we could even not see under the context of worship. But it is. It's a stunning moment of where they somehow see beyond even this scary Pharaoh, they see a bigger, more awesome God. And that, my friends, is something I just want in my life. Don't you want that? Can any of us honestly say that in that moment we would do as those two would do? I want to learn from their breathtaking heart of worship when every fiber of their being must have waged war against them doing that. See, sometimes we can be those that just endlessly focus. We can sit here almost judging out of ten the band. How was the worship? Oh, yeah, it was good, but it was a bit... And the, the mic went wrong, and it was okay, but I like this other guy. And we're just, ah, no! Monday to Saturday, hearts of worship. If we focus on that, when we come together, we could have a knackered old piano, and we would explode with passion for Jesus. Amen? One of the most inspiring things that I've ever seen in my life was this video clip of these Chinese Christians. And there were about 60 of them, and they led between them the vast majority of the 100 million Christians in China. Most of them were young women, late teenagers, I kid you not. And they were in this mountain retreat, and they had gathered together. At the end of the, uh, the video clip, you see this kind of commotion because the, the secret police have found out, and they're coming and they're arresting them. It's terrifying. But the bulk of this video clip is them worshipping with an intensity that gave me goosebumps and I have never experienced in my life. They were literally just out of tune piano and someone bashing away on it. But the passion in their hearts for Jesus, they had gone a huge distance into the middle of nowhere just to worship him. And as they worshipped, I kid you not, a cloud appeared. Undeniably in that room, a cloud of God's presence. I cannot explain it. But it was the delight of the Father over something that I yearn. Don't you yearn for that? Don't you yearn for this church to be like that more? And what your own heart to be like? And this is the joy. Is that this isn't about us micromanaging a Sunday experience. That's consumerism. That's not the heart of the gospel. That is not of the kingdom. <laughs> I love Joel Virgo, a mate of mine. He went to a, a, he went to a funeral of a, a senior guy in his church who had died in his 80s. And he got there and he said every single song he didn't know. Not one. There were all these oldest, you know, hymns. And he thought to himself, this guy who had died had been one of the most missionary-minded, compassionate men in his church. He was always looking out on Sundays for those who didn't know Christ. He was always pouring his life, never grumbling, giving himself to the church. And it suddenly dawned on Joel in, in his mind, he said, this guy has been sitting here singing these mainly modern worship songs. And all the time, his beautiful songs that he would have given anything to sung, he never sung one of them. And yet he, there was never even a, a, a moment of, oh, I just wonder if. Because his heart, his heart was so tuned for God, anything, any song remotely about God would do. That is biblical maturity. That, that is biblical maturity. And I believe God wants to take us on a journey 
more and more. And this is the joy. We can actually affect this because it's about our individual lives, Monday to Saturday. That's what this is about. And what we see, though, is this. The million-dollar question is this. Well, wait a minute, Tom. I see this sort of superhuman response in these midwives. And you're probably like me. I look at it. I get inspired. But I kind of feel a bit of pressure. I think, honestly, I'm doing well if I have a quiet time. You know? Wow. You know? You know, just this week, Love Canterbury, there's me like, you know, with my red T-shirt in the windsheet. You know, Martisfield Road, part of windsheet. There's me thinking, yeah, I'm pretty, uh, pretty seven hard, man. Pick up this litter. Counting the cost for JC. Here I am being a fool for the Lord. And then suddenly I see that monument. If you haven't seen it, Martisfield Road in windsheet, check it out. Monument for 500 years. This is where 41 martyrs who died Pretend, uh, defending, protecting religious freedom, burnt alive at the stake. And I just felt, felt so convicted, if I'm honest with you. I thought, oh, I'm just an infant. That's me counting the cost by having a t-shirt with the word City Church on it. Thinking I'm real, and I just have no idea. No idea. That, that passion that we read about here, that we see in church history, we've got to finish by asking how, right? If I just said, go and do it, you'd feel a pressure. And it's not about us feeling pressure. There's one word, there is only one word that could possibly ever give us the answer to how them and indeed us have any hope of being people who grow in our worship for God. Are you ready for this? You're on the edge of your seats. What is this word? Revelation. Turn to the person next to you and say, Revelation. What is Revelation? It is the making known of something that was previously unknown. Do you know, no human being, little ants that we are, we can't figure out God. (laughs) He's the creator. Get real. No human can figure him out. It's a ridiculous idea. It's comic. That we think we can fit. The only hope any human has is if he decides in his mercy to reveal himself to us. And what this book is all about is revelation. It is from him to us, not us discovering him. And this is my only possible offering to you today. How on earth did these two midwives do it? There's only one, there's only one answer. They had revelation, they had seen, like when these curtains go back, you see something, they had seen something in their hearts of the reality of God. You see, these guys were Hebrews, which meant they were part of the family, and their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was Abraham, right at the beginning of the Bible. Abraham, and they would have heard stories, do you remember, as they would have grown up as kids, do you remember our great-great-great-grandfather, Abraham, and how, yeah, he was a pagan sun worshiper, but God spoke to him, and everything that God said to him came true. Abraham's God, yeah? And he had a son, Isaac. Yeah, and remember what happened to Isaac, and he was, he was taken, and he was about to be killed, but God provided, yeah. And they would have grown up hearing these stories, being told these stories, the great stories of our God, of our, of our family God. And then he had a son, Jacob. And you know, Jacob, to be honest with you, as he grew up, my word, did he make some big mistakes as a dad. If you want to be encouraged, anyone here, read the story of Jacob. There's some good things, but there's some awful things. And actually what it does is it glorifies God. It glorifies the the kindness of God that he would continue to bless 
the nightmare that is Jacob, the nightmare that is Tom Shaw. And so they would have been living, growing up the stories. But this is the amazing thing. Their only hope of this moment of profound worship must have been revelation that our God is bigger than Pharaoh in simple terms. But can I say this? Their revelation reservoir is a tiny sliver compared with what we have. I can prove it. That's the book of Genesis. That's what orally they would have grown up hearing. Oh, what's this bit here? That's a bit chunkier, isn't it? What's that? It's the rest of the Bible. This is stunning, guys. At the moment that we pick up the story, where life's hard, almost certainly God has been effectively silent for over 300 years. (laughs) Sometimes we think, oh, I feel a bit distant from God at the moment. The story right now, on top of everything else that I've just said about pressure and their nightmare at work, the other added element is that as far as we can tell, God has been completely silent whilst Israel in Egypt has gone from sweet to a nightmare. There is absolutely nothing to suggest that God has been appearing and encouraging them. So this, listen, this is the only revelation they have growing up. There's nothing written down. They would have heard from their parents the stories about the God of the great, 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 great grandfather ages ago. Do you feel the wonder that for them, their worship experience, their worship cost was almost instant death and it was based on a slither of revelation? For us, The biggest cost for us worshipping, normally. (sighs) Based on an ocean of revelation. Do you see that? They were willing to die because of some oral stories told them. And we stand here now with page upon page upon page, upon page, upon page. What's it all about? It's revelation. The entire rest of the Old Testament from this point on screams out, declares characteristic of God after characteristic of God after characteristic of God. You read the story of David that will come up soon in the Bible and he defeats Goliath. What does that tell you? It talks about the power of God. And then later on his life, when he becomes king and he makes a terrible mistake and he commits adultery and murder, that story tells us about the mercy of God. And then you hear about the people of God coming into the promised land in the book of Joshua and it tells us about the provision of God. And then you read the book of Proverbs and it speaks about the wisdom of God. You read the book of Psalms and it speaks about the creative genius of God. And you read the prophets and it speaks about the desperate heart yearnings of a God who wants his people's heart's affection. And then you come into the New Testament. And the God who has been revealing himself from Genesis all the way through. You ready for this? Buckle up. It says the word, God, became flesh. 
Luke 24, Jesus says this, everything in the Old Testament, it's about me. It's about me. You see, sometimes, crazily, we can think of, yeah, Jesus is uh, he's the God of the New Testament. Yes, he is also the God of the Old. Hallelujah. It's not some separate thing. It's exquisite. And you must see this. If you miss this, I have served you terribly. As we read the book of Exodus, all the way through it, you see Jesus. You see Jesus? You see particularly this amazing figure, the angel of the Lord. He keeps cropping up. And I want to tell you, he ain't no ordinary angel, all right? He's God. Let's be specific. Have a guess. Who do you think he might be? He's Jesus. He is the pre-incarnate Jesus. All the moments that we see throughout the book of Exodus, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. It's Jesus working hard, might I put it, to drag his people, kicking and screaming, faults and all, grumbling, moaning, sinful, chapter after chapter after. He's dragging them, fighting for them, carrying them on eagles' wings. Where? To a place of worship. Hallelujah. And when it gets to the mountain, it's almost like the sun's carried them there. And they encounter the Father, they found to Yahweh, there he is. And you realize it's the same Jesus. The Bible's all about Jesus. He's everywhere. He's everywhere, hallelujah. He's stunning. So let me ask you this question. Listen, we often ask, what do people want from the church? And I think it's a legitimate question to a degree. Pumping kids work. Friendly welcome. Things that run smooth. Those are not bad. But let me ask the really, really, really important question. Not so much to what the people want from the church. What does God want from the church? What does our Father in heaven, when he looks at us, what does he want? I would humbly suggest when you look at this book, and the hero is not any of us, It's not Moses. When you see this Jesus throughout the whole thing, I think the answer is really, really gloriously simple. Do you know what he wants? Do you know what the Father wants? When he looks at a world that gets really excited about Arsenal, really excited about that holiday, oh, I can't wait. Gets really excited about a new house, bricks and mortar, wow! I think what he wants on a world, you ready for this? I think he wants a church that is wildly passionate about his son. Because his son gave everything for you to know him. I think when we think of what is worship, it is about us having unashamed adoration for Jesus. Think of it in those Trinitarian terms. It's not just coming to God. It's us loving Jesus, loving Jesus, worshipping Jesus. And as we do that, can you imagine the delight of the Father as he sees our hearts grow in passion for his Son? There's nothing that gets me more excited than if I hear someone loving and celebrating my daughters. I want to kiss them. And I agree with him. Yes, she is stunning, isn't she? Yes, she is a brilliant reader. She's a genius. That's a tiny reflection of the passion of the father for his son. 
And when we think about what is our highest calling, whether introvert or extrovert, whether a brand new Christian or a golden oldie for ages, we're joined together with one consuming passion, which is to adore, to make much of on a Monday morning or a Sunday morning is totally secondary. With a guitar, without a guitar, it's about adoring Jesus, our Savior. He saved Israel. He saved us. Hallelujah. He is the hero of every single story. And can I invite you to think through, because you're going to meet him really soon. You are. We all are. It's going to happen. And I want, you might say, do you know what? Tom, my pastor, the one thing he was always going on about was excitement for his Jesus. That's just kind of it. He wasn't very strategic. He wasn't very good at plans. But he's always going on about. So when you hurtle into eternity and you and the Father review your life, I just yearn for me, for Josie, for Daisy Lily Poppy, and for you. Above everything, your ever-increasing growing passion is Jesus. Because if you get Jesus, you get mission. If you get Jesus, you get giving. If you get Jesus, you get prayer. If you get Jesus, you get everything else. It's about him. It's about him. And this is the amazing twist. Why is God so passionate about us worshipping him? Is it because he needs our worship? No, he really doesn't. I'll tell you why. And this is amazing kindness of God. When we learn to make praise of Jesus our greatest calling, especially when life is dark like it is here, and even when it's faltering, and it's, and it's just our own little weak effort, but to God it's a fragrant offering. We still love your son. We still trust your son, God. Do you know you unlock the greatest joy a human can ever experience? Really? Yeah. See, God isn't religiously wanting you to work hard in praising God. The reason he's so bothered about us praising God is because actually as we praise God, we discover there is nothing that gives us greater happiness. Nothing. There's no, nothing. If you think, well, isn't it being a Christian like means I can't you know, give up on sex or like, you know, uh, you know, drugs or having good... Those things in the right context are not bad at all. They're good gifts from God. What I'm saying is this. To be a Christian is to be a pleasure seeker. But the only place you find true pleasure is in delighting and praising in his son. Think about this. I mean, and I'm, I'm saying praise, not just internally liking. I'm talking praise. When you see an amazing sunset, or you just really love your girlfriend or boyfriend, or your mate does something amazing for you, what do you want to do? Do you just want to go, hmm? No. You want to scream it, right? You want to tell someone, anyone. That's praise. Listen, what's happening is in that moment, you're already enjoying, savoring that thing, but your joy goes from here to here when you actually give voice and praise that thing. If you can't tell anyone, you're kind of happy. But your joy is still down here, right? But when you get someone to tell, joyometer. Has anyone here seen that Friends episode where Monica gets engaged? And the scene is her on the balcony to New York going, I'm engaged, I'm engaged, I'm engaged. She does it for 15 minutes. 
It's like this hilarious joke, and eventually someone screams back, shut up. And she says, no, I'm engaged. What she is doing, she is praising. It's not enough for her to see a good thing. She has to give voice to it. As you praise, your joy, already there, I love God, as you praise, it consummates your joy. Do you understand that? So if you're someone and you don't really praise God, you are literally missing out on joy. Happiness is there, even when it's tough. As you learn to give joy and praise, what happens is, because you're hardwired, your joy starts to grow. That's why it's so key. That's why it's so huge. It's not just because he deserves it, although he does. It is because your joy is consummated, completed, increased through giving him praise. It says in the Bible, doesn't it? He inhabits our PowerPoint. He inhabits our sermon. No, no, say it nice and loud. One, two, three. He inhabits our... He literally somehow is closer to us when we praise him. Where two or more are gathered, there I am. Can I humbly say the only unique thing about the church of Jesus Christ is his presence? You know, gangs can outshine us when it comes to deep community. Oh, way above. Many Oxfam type organizations can outstrip us when it comes practically to humanitarian aid. Miles ahead. Cold play really can do music better than us. Sorry, Ollie and the boys. I mean, it's great. but So wait a minute, Tom. If you're saying the world can do music better, community better, helping the poor practically better, what, what, what is the church? The unique thing about the church, humbly, is that as we praise, the Bible says God comes. That's it. It's our birthright. It's our first love. It's who we're called to be. Shall we stand to our feet? If I can encourage the band. The great thing is we now have a real chunk of time to worship him. So right now, just don't get distracted by anything. Don't miss this moment. You just might want to close your eyes. To be honest with you, sometimes, at times like this, the first thing I need to do first is just kind of, Oh, so Lord, I'm a bit sorry if I'm honest, Lord, that I just know life has been hectic and crazy and domestic and I've kind of just let you slip a little. And if that's you, even now, just in your heart, the beautiful news is God adores, he adores what we call repentance, he adores it. The humble, gentle, turning away from making anything else number one. That's what it is. And it's normally a good thing. It's normally a good thing, like work, or your family, or your friends. Just, they're good things. But even now, in this moment, just allow the Spirit just to massage your heart for it, just to reveal if there's anything that's just become your first love. Even now, just say, Lord... Lord, we want to worship you now. Having known that anything that's just been 
bringing a certain level of hardness of heart in my heart, I just lay it down. I turn away from it. Lord, I thank you that the image, the picture we have here of these two midwives was amidst a very tough situation. All it was, was a decision. They decided. And it's written in the pages of history to inspire us here today. I want to pray just all across this room. Just from this very moment, there would just be hearts just saying, yeah, I just, I can't, you see, this is, you're right before your God now, your Father. And just say to him, Lord, I know I just need you to help me. Like Tom said, you know, this picture of God dragging Israel, kicking and screaming into a place of worship. If, if you say, that's my only hope, is God doing it. Just open your hands. Show him your hunger and yet your need. That's a beautiful mix. I'm hungry, Lord. I'm hungry. I want to change. I want revelation, which I can't manufacture, to fill my mind and my heart. I want to pray for an outrageous tidal wave of revelation in these days. For some of you, God's giving it to you right now. It's like a fresh, fresh spring rain. It's just coming to your hearts even now. Ooh. <laughs> Joy of the commitment of your Father to you, not yours to Him. The joy of the commitment of the Father to you. Lifting the try-hard mentality, filling you with the very presence of heaven. Getting you ready to spend eternity loving His Son. For some of you, Revelation is just going to come in unexpected times this week. And God's saying, get ready. Get ready. Get ready to change. Get ready to rekindle your first love. To fan into flame that which may have grown a little tired, a little weary. He takes our little loaves, our tiny fishes, and he multiplies it. Lord, lead us on, I pray.